So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Just brought people in in a way that allowed them to feel ownership of the brand or co-ownership and almost co-creation of the brand. So here's maybe, I don't know if this is little known, it might be to a lot of people listening to this, Harley, all the local events, like think about like local Harley rallies, state rallies, even some of the bigger kind of nationwide rallies like Sturgis. A lot of the people who are working those events are volunteers. They are not being paid by the brand to Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Shelly Paxton. Shelly, thanks for making time. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about you helping the marketing of these huge global brands and ending up as CMO of Harley-Davidson. But let's start with this book. Tell us about Soulbatical. Yeah, well, Soulbatical is sort of like, you know, sort of my come to Jesus in life. Soulbatical is when I was, you know, chief marketing officer of Harley-Davidson. That was just over four years ago when I left, but it was at the pinnacle of a 26-year corporate career stewarding some of the most iconic brands in the world from Visa to AOL to McDonald's to Harley, mostly working on the advertising and media side of those brands. But I I realized that I'd gotten to the top of this particular mountain, right? I mean, I think most of us can agree that it's a pretty sexy job for a marketer to be the chief marketing officer of Harley Davidson. And yet, to be honest, I was feeling really kind of empty and unfulfilled on the inside. And I was like, how can this be? How can you spend your whole career trying to climb to this pinnacle place and not feel lit up about it, knowing that you're doing amazing work and riding motorcycles around the world and doing all those things and yet not feeling it on the inside. And so Soulbatical, it's the, the subtitle is A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life, is exactly that. It was my journey to understand, well, wait a second, what is my truth? What is What does fill me up from the inside out? And it's sort of my understanding of what does it mean to truly be successful? And I mean that as in F-U-L-L, right? So to have success and fulfillment, which I guess for many, many years of my career, I thought were mutually exclusive. So I went on a journey to understand that and christened myself chief soul officer of my own life and told the story in a way that not only kind of takes you on the wild ride of my life and my my journey of leaving Harley and finding myself, but also invites you to do the same with some, you know, with exercises and questions and sort of some provocative things to say, hey, let's hold up the mirror and go on a, a journey together. You know, as I've started going through the book and I, I'm a real audiobook nerd, I don't read books. So I like converted the book to in Kindle, like PDF and Kindle and have my text-to-speech on my phone. So it's reading me your book in robot voice right now. Oh, no, I would have just sent you my audio book. I recorded it. Oh, dang it. Oh, okay. I got to get that. Okay, I'll send it to you after we finish recording. Okay, great. So I think something that occurs to me and is... You know, I think especially for ambitious people, I don't know, maybe it's for everyone, but I think especially ambitious people, sometimes it feels like, at least I see this in myself, I don't want to hear what you think about it. It seems like sometimes if I have concerns about about my, like if I have concerns about my own self-image, then I can like go get external proof as like this band-aid. Like I can try and use other people's opinions of me as a band-aid for 
my lack of high opinion of myself or something. Do you, do you yeah. see that? Or do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, especially as a coach, right? This is <laughs> So a part of my business is coaching. And I realized I went through this myself, right? I had huge imposter syndrome and I realized that I was basing my own self-worth on all of this external validation. Exactly. As you said, like I had literally pinned my entire identity to sexy brands, big titles, you know, a meaty paycheck, some material things. And I didn't realize until I left that my identity was so wrapped up in all of that. And you're right. Like part of the sabbatical mission is that, you know, self-worth trumps net worth. And it's, it's us building from the inside out that real appreciation of ourselves and getting clear on what is our identity outside of all of those other things that we so often pin it to. You know, before the show, we were, start, we were talking about Jason Garner and, you know, listeners will probably remember his, his episode recently about, you know, coming out of Live Nation and making these discoveries. And it's funny that we're having you on right now. I just had this weekend, this talk this weekend with my wife about like, I've had, you know, so many ups and downs with entrepreneurship, right? And in many ways, like a lot of times I've been putting like the life I really wanted to live off till the future until I was richer kind of thing. You know, there's this great book from C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It's about this like senior tempter who's coaching a junior tempter how to get his patient during World War II to like become bad, right? And kind of diabolical, funny. But what he says is like, the big goal here is to get your patient to heap all of his present, every good thing from today and burn it on the altar of tomorrow so that he doesn't get any enjoyment out of life. And just this weekend, I was talking to my wife. I was like, you know what? Like now that I'm 40, like I decided like, let's just enjoy life now. Like I've done a lot of cool things, but there's been many times that I'm like, oh, I'll do that. I'll do that after I hit this financial goal or something. Right. And it's, I feel like I'm like on this thing right now of, okay, how can I once again, build another business? Cause it's like a fun sport, but you know, how can I do it Monday to Thursday and go snowmobile snowboarding every Friday? We live on the side of a mountain outside of park city. So we can just go into the national park out the backyard and, and like stop working at five and actually enjoy my four kids and like balance, like ambition and like living the real life I always planned on. And like, you know, actually go back to doing art. I'm an art school dropout, you know, not just like, a couple times a year when I like get sick, fed up and go spend a Saturday. But like, what if it was like a consistent part of my life again? And yeah. like, can I balance that with my ambition? So I want your, I want your coaching, I want your advice on. Oh my God. Okay. There's so much goodness in, in what you just said, because this is, this is at the center of what I live to the best of my ability every day. Cause I'm human. And I also get in my own way and of what I preach because sabbatical is exactly that. Actually, somebody said brilliantly, a friend of mine wrote a book called the millennial whisperer. And as I was interviewing him the other day, and I was like, one of the things I loved is that the millennials, are you technically a millennial? Yeah, I am 1980. So I am the first okay. millennial. All right. So you're the early millennial. So this is interesting because what I learned from him is the millennials are the why wait generation. Why are we putting off happiness? Why are we putting off joy? Why are we putting off what we love to do the most? We're not willing to make those sacrifices like Gen Xers did, like baby boomers did. And I honestly think as I look at millennials, as I look at Gen Zers, I'm like, this is beautiful. Like this is a cultural, like burning platform moment to say, we've got to change the way we think and the way we work because we're playing dangerous games. Like the two games I know I played a lot and I hear in what you just described are the I shoulds and the I'll be, I'll be happy when, right? And those are super dangerous games for us to play because we don't know that there's tomorrow, right? Like today is a gift. It is the present. It's the only moment we know we'll ever have. And I don't mean that to sound all woo woo because I'm really grounded in reality, but the, the, here's what I preach. What I preach is what would it be life? Like, like, I don't believe in, this work-life balance, because I believe we have one life and we have multiple facets of that life. And the things you love to do, like getting out onto the mountain and maybe reconnecting with your artistic side and spending more time with your family, I like to think of that as like work life. Well, I like to think about that as life alignment and the alignment is to your values. So how clear are you on what your top two to three values are? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question we should probably all be asking ourselves, right? Yeah. And this is some of what the book goes into. So here's, I'll tell my personal story, right? Because I thought I was clear on my values and then I walk away and I'm like unwinding my identity, having a complete identity crisis. And I'm starting to understand like, oh, I've got to go back to the beginning and really figure out my true north. And as I was thinking about what are my, it's really hard, by the way, to get your values to like top two or three. It's easy to circle like 10 or 15 on a piece of paper, but when push comes to shove or your feet are put to the fire, I realized that mine were freedom, number one, authenticity, and courage. No surprise that those are kind of the key themes throughout my book. And I was like, how funny that freedom is my number one, yet I shackled myself to a corporate career for 26 years. No surprise that it probably wasn't filling me up from the inside out. And no surprise that I also did corporate in my own way because I lived all over the world. I traveled all over the world. I kind of had the rebels version of a traditional corporate career. So that was me like pushing into freedom in a way, but still staying in a lane, if that makes any sense. And now I'm like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm super grateful for the entire career that I had and all the amazing brands that I worked for. And at the same time, now I'm like, I need more freedom in my life. No surprise I became an entrepreneur. No surprise I now run my own business and have a real diversity of things that I do. I speak, I write, I coach, I, you know, and, and on and on. So it is interesting. And then the authenticity piece is what, you know, is what I talk about. I mean, it's the heart of Soulbatical is really sitting down, slowing down and listening deeply to what is our soul trying to tell us? What is our truth? What is our essence? What is that thing we're pretending not to know? I'm guessing one of the things, Jess, that you're pretending not to know is it is time for me to carve out that space, you know, carve out that Friday afternoon, maybe only work four days a week. Maybe you only work three weeks a month. Maybe there's a way for you to create that. And there's always something we're pretending not to know that, you know, the little signs are, are coming up and trying to get our attention. And then, you know, as in my case, it's like, it's a whisper and then it's a shout. And if you continue to ignore it, it's like a two by four to the head. And oftentimes we wait for that kind of crisis or tragic moment, the two by four to the head, instead of saying, oh, wait a second, what does it look like to live all aspects of my life more in alignment with my values? Here's a question I love. This might be a fun one for you to play with. So if you are living your life 100% true to you, what would change right now? Can, can you define that a bit more? When you say 100% true to you, what's an example? Yeah, so think about, so that's an authenticity question, right? So think about if you, when you really sink in deep and you're connected, call it what you want, call it your soul, call it your truth, call it your knowing. When you're really connected to that and that little voice inside, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, I think I would probably, I would probably be working harder to figure out how to still accomplish our goals. And like, I, you know, I'm trying to make a ton of money so I can self-fund our charity to a higher level, right? And so sometimes I tell myself that I need to dress in a suit and look like an investment banker kind of a thing. And there are times that that is definitely an advantage and knowing how to look the part right works. And then there's another side of me that thinks like, you know, does it need to be me? Can I build a system where, you know, I'm, I'm the chairman, I'm on our board, you know, can I just hire the right executives to go to those meetings? Does it really need to be me? You know, can I grow my hair like Kurt Cobain, like when I was in high school and, and, you know, embrace some more of my like snowboarder artist style and stuff that can get you excluded from certain meetings because in the quest for efficiency, people do judge by appearances, right? And so, you know, can I, can I engineer a life where I don't need to have that look for business because I've created a system that takes care of it? And uh, I don't know, maybe that's one thing that, that makes me think that I think about. I think that's super interesting because then it goes full circle back to the conversation you had with your wife this weekend, right? Which is, 
wow, if I were doing that, how, you know, what kind of spaciousness could I create in my life for these other things I want to be doing? And what, you know, yeah, what role do I play that's in alignment with my values, that's in alignment with who I am? And do I need to be all things to all people? I mean, I always say like, I'm orange. My favorite color is orange. My, you know, my book cover is orange. All things in my life and my brand are orange. And one, it's my favorite color, but there's also a very intentional message there. I mean, this is the marketer and me talking, right? And the message is, I'm not beige. I'm never going to be beige. I'm not going to do it on your podcast, but I'm not afraid to drop a good F-bomb, right? Like, I'm, I promise not to screw up your rating. But it's it's really interesting. That's that's kind of the know thyself, be true to thyself. And so, you know, what, what does that look like? Because I would argue the more time you're spending reconnecting with your reconnecting with your art and immersing yourself more in nature and doing all the things you love to do, it will actually have exponential returns in your business as well. And in how you're showing up. Well, it, it's really fun for me. I get, I get some really great marketing minds on the show and, you know, I, I started my first sales job 25 years ago and about 10 years ago, when I was the CEO of this private equity fund, I realized I'm just top sales guy, you know, and, uh, and I thought, man, if I was better at marketing, I wouldn't have to sell so much. So I've been like this closet marketing nerd taking courses and reading endless numbers of audiobooks. And it's actually why I started this podcast is like my own content marketing system, right? Yeah, I love it. Um, and I really think, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I think about our real estate investment brand. And I think, you know, what if it was more of this, like, what if we're going after a completely different audience? Like, you know, I can't help Goldman, Goldman Sachs, you know, like that, that, that would be a tough, tough road to hoe at this point. Right. But I look at like all my crazy entrepreneur friends who like they've, they've had the entrepreneurial ups and downs like I have, and they wouldn't mind having some like boring mailbox money on the side. Right. So I'm thinking like, what if our whole brand was about like boring, reliable income for exciting people, you know, like come buy your freedom back, come, come buy an adventure. And like, our brand is like me going, like take some entrepreneur, some celebrity, some pro athlete. We go do some like crazy adventure and film and it's a TV show, you know, web series, whatever. Right. Kind of like bringing like Red Bull to investing. Right. So we contrast, we show like the guys who look like investment bankers back in the office who I, I've got. Right. And then, and then I'm going and doing the crazy stuff. So my co-founders, right. And it's like trying to like mash up these two worlds that have a natural tension. So I'm interested in any like feedback or well okay I'll tell you the first my first reaction you saw the big smile on my face I was just like okay so it it hit a nerve in a really positive way because I believe as brands and as humans we have to take a point of view so I love that you just took a really strong point of view you're not trying to be the other guy you're not trying to be the expected thing what you're actually saying is I'm not the expected thing and I know there's a need for this because you've lived that right and so so I have found a ton of success as somebody who's come out of a lot of, you know, big brands as we talked about and who's been, you know, sort of like holding those big brands up and steward stewarding them in a way like I kind of lost the Shelly Paxton brand and all of it. And the question I asked myself, which I think is really interesting in the context of what you just said is, well, what does it look like if Shelly Paxton is the most iconic brand I could ever represent? So then I started thinking about me and my work in terms of being an iconic brand and all iconic brands have a very definitive point of view. It's not always the popular point of view, but that's what I love in what you said, because there's beauty in that, in that tension. And I think when we try to be all things to all people, or there isn't that inherent tension in the proposition, it falls flat. Well, I think, you know, I, I made some pretty unaverage amounts of money in my twenties and my ambition plus like a desire to feel special. Like I got kind of a big ego that Mike Tyson says, if you do not choose humility, life will visit humility upon you. Right. Oh. So then later I decided like, oh, I need to stay out of the spotlight. Cause that's like a danger zone for me. And then over time, I've read, really been into the Stoics and some other philosophies, Austrian guy from a hundred years ago named Martin Buber about connecting with others. And I, I really think there's some things about the Richard Branson approach where he's like, I think a chairman's job is to get free ink for the business. Like use yourself as like free advertising, like get on the front page where you could never buy advertising by like stunts that you do. And like that really like 
my inner action sports nerd who has like so many broken bones and scars is like, oh yeah, I could get into that, right? So that's kind of like the appeal for me for something like that. Well, I'm curious, like maybe it is the physical kind of stunts. Like I get the Branson approach, but for you, unless you want to break more bones and do more things, right? But you know, you are a dad of four and all the things. Like, what does it look like to do that from a thought leadership perspective? And to be like, I, as I listen to your podcast, I'm like, what's really cool is like, you're a provoc, you're a provocateur, like you're an edgy thinker. And so maybe that's your version of a stunt. Well, this is my idea of like, what if our point of view was about adventure, you know, and like your adventure can be like we do, like going way out into the middle of the Canadian Rockies, miles from everything and going up to, you know, 10, 12,000 foot elevation peaks. And, you know, like, you know, it's, it's all on you if there's a problem kind of adventure or, or what if your adventure is taking on the nonprofit cause you care about and going after what feels like insurmountable problems? Or what if it is like picking up, picking up the sport or the talent that you were always told you were terrible at as a kid and should never try. And so it feels gutsy, even though, even though you're not a little kid, like, what if we didn't define people's adventures, we just documented them and celebrated them and encouraged them. And, and try to like, you know, invite people on our adventures with us, like, like our actual investors. Hey, listen, we're doing this adventure. If anybody wants to go to California, if anybody wants to meet us in Mexico, here's how this works, you know, and like, yeah. and, but then inviting them to like document their own and share them across the community. And like, we, what if we didn't define the adventure? Cause for me, learning is an adventure. Like I, I, I'm sure our listeners are sick of me talking about my listening to three or four new audiobooks a week. Right. And we're almost at 500 episodes of this show. Like I am nerdy about learning more so that it is like a discovery to me, the learning thing. Anyways. Well, there's, so I just want to pinpoint what I think is the key word and what you said, and it's community. Like there's in what you just described, however you create that with real adventures, with virtual adventures, with, you know, your provocative thought leadership, with this podcast, all the facets of your business you're creating a community that you're inviting people into and then let them write the rest on their terms, right? I talk in terms of rewriting the script of success. That's what I'm out to do. I want people to rewrite the script of success on their own terms. And you can allow people to, you know, rewrite the script of adventure on their terms, come into our adventure or do it yourself. But either way, you're provoking that and you're bringing that spice to their life for lack of a better phrase, right? There's something really beautiful in that because that's the connective tissue that's keeping that community. That's what made Harley has made Harley so successful for over a hundred years. Yeah. Can you talk about that? So, I mean, it's easy for me to want to talk about me, but for anybody who's doing a startup, listening to this podcast, when you think about some of the lessons on what Harley has done right about community that maybe aren't as obvious on the outside, what comes to mind? Well, I mean, I guess staying, yeah, the community aspect. So here's what's so brilliant. And this started long before there was like digital media and all the, you know, all the platforms that exist today that connect us from, you know, that connect every corner of this globe. What Harley did is just brought people in, in a way that allowed them to feel ownership of the brand or co-ownership and almost co-creation of the brand. So here's maybe, I don't know if this is little known, it might be to a lot of people listening to this, Harley, all the local events, like think about like local Harley rallies, state rallies, even some of the bigger kind of nationwide rallies like Sturgis. A lot of the people who are working those events are volunteers. They are not being paid by the brand to do that work because Harley has brought them in. It's like you bring them in, you help them to feel valuable. You give them the the space and the stage to co-create And you find people start to work for free and to, you know, be your best brand ambassadors. That's the number one thing that I would say. If you just take that one rule out of the playbook, it's going to take you further than anything else. That's interesting. When you think about folks who they don't have a legacy to build on and they're going to start a legacy to try to engender that type of emotional response, what would be some of the principles that come to mind for you? Oh, well, I mean, some that I stand for. So the first one I'm going to repeat again, authenticity. Like, to, and to me, that's what has 
The Harley brand has always been true to itself. It has never changed what it stood for. It's been unabashedly, <laughs> unabashedly about that freedom and that rebelliousness and, and, and unapologetically, right? So I would say I do the same with my brand. I invite you to continue to do the same with your brand and anybody else listening, what, yeah, as a startup or otherwise, I would say, you know, to me, authenticity is the truest form of rebellion. It's the thing I probably say most often, but I think it's also the thing that creates the deepest connection, whether it's human to human or human to a brand. I mean, ultimately a brand is another relationship we have. So we want to see that it's in integrity. We want to know that it's it's true and it stands for the same things that we do. So I know today it's like, so, like I buy into brands that are lobbying for like a beauty counter as an example. I use beauty counter beauty products because I know they're lobbying for clean products and they don't put any, you know, stuff. They don't put crap and chemicals and all that stuff in their products. And so I know they're lobbying on my behalf. They're very cause driven and they're giving me a clean product. So there's just a, there's a, an authenticity in what they're creating and how they're presenting it and how they're bringing me into the community and inviting me to be a part of it and a representative of it. So that's one example. But I think that that to me is, is especially in the world of social media, where it feels like everybody's got an Instagram filter on every single thing they do. I feel like people see through that really quickly and that a brand is kind of posing, right? Versus a brand authentically, every aspect of what it does stands for the values it says it stands for. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think there's some of these words like, you know, I, I named this podcast innovation and leadership. I think those are two like the most overused words, right? And and like somebody can come up any you know people call anything new it's innovation because it's new. It could be like the exact same thing but this time it's in brown and they call innovative innovative new design. It's like no it's just the same thing in brown, right? Yeah. Authenticity is another word that can be you know, like just claiming to be authentic doesn't make you authentic, right? It's, you know, it can be such an overused buzzword, like story, culture, innovation. You know, you got these like overused buzzwords that almost like they, they almost like lose their power from overuse. But then as soon as you say authenticity and Harley Davidson in the same brand, all some people are like, oh, that's, that's not something that flip-flops depending on what's popular on social media this week. Their, their authentic brand, dude, like it's almost like they live it in the bones, right? And so that's, I like the word you said, integrity. Go on. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I, so just to build on that. So, I mean, authenticity to me, I agree with you, by the way. And I'm laughing about all those words because like that whole like buzzword bingo thing, like I get it. And these days it's as bad as it's ever been. At the same time, when I think about authenticity, I would say, here are the questions to me. What do you stand for, right? Like at the core, like we were talking about earlier, what are your values as an organization, as a brand? What do you stand for? And get clear, like top two, what do you stand for? And then how are you living that every day in every aspect of how you engage in the world. Think about it like as a human, because I think brands are living organisms. So how, so what do you stand for? And how are you living into that in everything that you do? To me, it's that simple. You can take the authenticity word out of it, but that also ties back to integrity because if you are staying true to your values and living into those in everything you do, then you're being authentic and people, <laughs> see, feel, and smell that stuff. Yeah. Listen, I don't think innovation or authenticity or any of these words are bad words. I think that there needs to be this like kind of hard look in the mirror of like, like you said, am I posing? Yeah. Am I posing for this, right? Am I posing for being eco-friendly? Am I posing for these things that brands get tempted to pose for, right? Yeah. Where like, there was something else you said about like, do you really live it? And I think, oh, that's, that's a real interesting question because there's like, there's what we think will sell versus what do we actually live? And like, obviously the bigger the organization gets, not everybody's going to be as big an action sports nerd as me and my brother and some of my partners. Right. But there's got to be some way for us to like actually keep living it as the organization grows in size. Well, and here's what I think is really interesting. This connects, it well, in my mind, it connects to the, the conversation we were just having around adventure. 
So it might not be that it's, you're, you know, everybody's going to be the same level of action sports nerd, but adventure means something to everyone. So how do you keep alive that spirit of adventure in the organization that everybody can live into or lean into, or maybe you put tighter parameters around it, but having that spirit of adventure and that being a value, like bringing adventure into people's lives or however you choose to frame it, that feels powerful. Yeah. And it's very authentic given where it's coming from and how you live. Listen, I struggle some days to live sabbatical. I not only, you know, started the journey, wrote the book, started the business, but I struggle to live it. I just got back from a month in Baja, Mexico, where I went down. I was like, you know what? I'm not living this. I really need to slow down to kind of recalibrate, to set things up for 2021 and to practice what I preach. So we're all going to have those moments where you have to kind of like, you know, have, have a little moment with ourselves. But I think yeah. adventure could be that for, for you guys. Well, and I think like, you know, Harley Davidson, Red Bull, you know, some of these other brands, Falcom, whatever, not everybody in the company at, at Red Bull's into action sports, not everybody who works at Harley Davidson rides a Harley per se, right? But yeah, there are ways that that I'm sure, well, and I'd be interested in this. What do you think Harley did right to help people bring into the fold and and live the brand more themselves? I mean, Harley, well, it's a good question. So I was, I was not a rider before I went to the company. I had, you know, I had just, you know, come off of a crazy divorce and I wanted to kind of like fire up my rebel. I was recruited to come into the company. I'm like, well, that feels like, you know, the next chapter. Sorry, I was editing myself. That feels like, you know, the sort of like rebellious next chapter for me. And so I learned how to ride and I was like, that feels fun. Like that's exciting. And that I want wanted, honestly, for me, it was really important because in marketing, we really have to get into our consumer's mind, into our consumer's life to understand what they're experiencing. And it was really hard for me. And it felt a bit inauthentic to me to be representing Harley and marketing and not spend time on a motorcycle and not spend time at rallies, at events, in places with our customers doing what they love most. So Harley created a culture where there, for example, was a lot of riding that happened within the company. There would sometimes be riding challenges. We would go for group rides at lunchtime. There would be, you know, certain things that we would do with our customers as executives of the, of the company. So you can create those, those moments for people to live the life and, and spend time with the customer, but you don't have to always do it. Right. But we do always always have to understand our customer. Well, even you just saying that makes me think like, so we've been thinking about making how-to videos and like, how do we create like incredibly cheap clinics? Like if you've never snowboarded and you want to learn how, what's the cheapest clinic we can, you know, how can we make this the most accessible or whatever? Right. But as you're saying, I'm thinking like, why wouldn't we run that for our employees too? Like, What's your adventure? Like, not just how can we have our customers double down on their adventures? How can we help our employees double down on their adventures? And like that would, to me, that feels like it would create a natural energy in the organization and make the organization more magnetic to attract the right people to want to come to it. And I, I had never thought about that until you were just saying that. Yeah, I'm glad it inspired that thought. I love it. And these are the things that are often like right under our nose, right? And they're not hard to execute. And that imagine, like, I'd be really curious to hear where it goes from there because then you've got employees going, wait, now we want to do something. Like they'll carry, they'll, they'll carry the torch. You know, you might get this started, but then it becomes a whole kind of culture unto itself. And and the only caution I would say is we also had to work really hard to make sure we weren't getting too insular, right? That we weren't, you know, that we were keeping our fingers on the pulse just outside of motorcycling in the broader culture. But that's also been like so much of Harley's been culture defining in so many ways, which is maybe another little nugget that I would offer to everybody. It's like, where do you intersect with the cultural zeitgeist for lack of a better word and what's going on and then and how can you you know authentically or with integrity you know leverage that which is a really powerful thing and you have to do a whole lot less work around it yeah it is interesting you say that because you you made the one comment of like maybe there are some parameters you put right because there's a bunch of people that will probably come up with something for an adventure that 
you know, I don't know that we can authentically say, oh yeah, we think that's an adventure, you know, and like us being willing to take a stand is probably going to be a prerequisite for actually having it, having authenticity is like not pretending we think things are adventures that we don't think are adventures. Well, this, and goes, like, back, this goes back to how do you want to define it, right? So get really clear about, you know, the values, right? And what does adventure mean to you slash the organization? Because you're going to look at it through a different lens than somebody else might, or then a Red Bull might, or pick another adventurous yeah. brand. And so what is your version of what that looks like? Because I think broad adventure could also water it down. Really specific point of view adventure is going to be interesting, right? Like yeah. What's your, your flavor of adventure that no one else does or can do or can stand for? Yeah, which hopefully will be a, ma a marketing magnet in and of itself, right? So one other thing that's fascinating to me is your international experience. I I'm interested, again, startup founders listening to the show or in other innovators, right? And they're thinking like, man, we're hoping to make payroll in two weeks. I don't know, like, you, you know, like thinking, how can this brand translate internationally may not be on the forefront yet. Those people who, there's probably things that startups could do right now to intentionally make it easier to eventually go international. Do you have any thoughts about whether it's stuff in Turkey or Africa or things that you've done of like advice for, let's say, American brands that eventually want to be international brands? Yeah. So I would, a couple of things. It's such a juicy question. And I, I was, I was sort of pausing for a minute because I haven't thought about this in a long time and it's a really good question. So a couple of things are coming to my mind. Number one, I would say if that, like, don't think about that, right? Because I think, I think if it's not on your business plan or your roadmap today, but you know, you'll eventually get there, don't let it clutter your thinking at this point. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I have been, I have represented brands and translated brands. I don't literally mean language, but I mean culturally translated brands in a lot of different places. My first taste of that was representing McDonald's in Turkey and representing McDonald's in India and, and like in Africa and, you know, a lot of the places that you just mentioned. And there is the work. I mean, it's the same fundamental brand values. The, what, the essence of what the brand stands for does not change. Or again, you've got kind of that integrity problem, how it gets translated to be relevant to local culture culture and local customers is really where the, is really where the work is done. Can, right. Yeah. Can you give us a couple of examples? Like what was an example that was different for Turkey compared to Africa, compared to India, or, you know, like just what's, here's one insight we had for Turkey. Here's one insight we had Africa. Here's one insight we had India. So I'm just going to tell you these as they come to mind. And sure. I'm, sure. I'm going to mix brands. And That's I'm okay. Gonna, I'm going to mix countries. So so here's a good example. In McDonald's in China, let's do this one because this is a stark example. Bringing, uh, so McDonald's in China, McDonald's is so, well, this is back in mid-2000s, right? So I don't know what it's like right now, but mid-2000s, as I was experiencing this and living over in Shanghai, and we were really trying to make it as culturally relevant as possible, one of the things that I understood was, oh my God, it's actually really expensive for the local Chinese to eat it McDonald's. So what we think of as convenient, cheap, fast food here in the U.S., was not at all that in a place like China. It's way cheaper to buy something for like, you know, a, a quarter or a dollar off the street that can actually feed your entire family. So the way we positioned McDonald's, it still stood for kind of the, the same quality and like the same values, but we actually had to position it as like a higher end family meal. So it kind of became a family outing and a date place which is not what it would be here. I mean, yes, maybe families here, but like the takeout, whatever, it became a literal dine-in experience. Same in India. So this is fascinating. In India, McDonald's had to have two kitchens, had the vegetarian kitchen and the non-vegetarian kitchen to make sure all of that was according to local standards and beliefs and culture. And then most Indians, at least in those days, would not um, do self-service, would not carry their own food. They were used to being served. So McDonald's had to change its entire operations flow and process 
to serve people at tables in India. Nothing about the fundamental values of the brand changed, but the execution and the translation of it changed from country to country to country. So I, I'm really fascinated by that story specifically because it seems like there's got to be this balance beam of like, how do we preserve how do we preserve what's special about our brand and yet have the humility to adapt? Like if you threw out everything to make it just feel Indian, then it's probably not going to be McDonald's anymore. Right. right. And so like, like any, any thoughts on like that balance beam of like, you know, no, this is one we need to hold the line versus this is the one we need to have the humility to learn. Yeah, I'm trying to think of examples and I'm so I mean, well, that's obviously one example of the humility to go like, oh, I guess we better, who cares how we do it in 97 other countries? I be, I guess we better deliver the hamburger in this country. Yeah, well, in, in the, I guess, so it's a strategic decision to say we want to go into that country in the first place, that we're willing to create two kitchens, which we haven't done anywhere else in the world. I was on the ad agency side of this. So I wasn't part of that actual decision making and that we want to have the option to serve people in the way that they're accustomed to being served while still standing for what we stand for. That was a decision that McDonald's was willing to make. It's not like that everywhere. As far as I know, I've been back to India with Harley and into some McDonald's. It's not necessarily still like that. So it's like culture kind of shifted along the way, but it was kind of a meet customers where they are as long as it's still in sync with our values. And I guess that's the that's the balancing formula that I would offer is you know, once it starts to cross the line of, you know, the articulation of what we stand for as a brand, it's got to be a hard no. But in the context of what we stand for as a brand, where we think we can be flexible to meet the customer where they are and to be relevant to the local culture, those to me are where we're kind of like a bamboo and we bend a little bit, you know, in order to create that relationship. So, so what did that look like with Harley in India? Oh, Harley. So that's a really interesting one because Harley just made the decision. I saw this in the news about a month ago. Harley just made the decision to pull out of India. So that was that was announced. It's been a it's been a rough ride in India. <laughs> Every pun intended for for Harley. <laughs> Because, well, let me put it this way. So in markets like India, Vietnam, India and Vietnam are two great examples because they're huge motorcycling markets. If you just look at the entire motorcycle market across the globe, those are massive markets. But Harley is barely a player because what the motorcycles people are riding in those places are purely, it's economical. It's commute. It's a cheaper vehicle. You can put, they put a lot of their family on it, which is always astonishing. I have so many amazing photos and I'm always like, talk about a balancing act, but it's really, it's like, it's cheap commuting is basically what motorcycling represents. And Harley is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Harley's built around this culture of freedom and leisure riding and kind of getting away with your buddies and creating an event of it. You know, Harley's kind of built around doing these beautiful weekend rides with maybe your local hog chapter and then stopping for breakfast at your local place. And there's this, there's this very premium luxury leisure aspect to Harley. That's what the entire brand is built on. And so Harley made some decisions to one, go in the market and try to create that culture. So in addition to the commute and was really only able to appeal to, you know, the top echelon of the market who have a lot of, you know, disp you know, a lot of, a lot of extra income, let's put it that way. And then, but was never really able to crack into the core of the motorcycle market because just too expensive and not an extensive dealer network. And so I think that's one of the reasons they pulled out. Interestingly enough, one of the decisions we made while there was to introduce a smaller, smaller displacement vehicle. So it was actually called the street series. I think Harley's still selling streets, but a big part of the strategic decision to do that was to also appeal to riders who couldn't afford, you know, who either didn't want to be on these bigger bikes or couldn't afford these bigger bikes that were like 20,000 plus. And so it was a way for us to tap into new markets, especially around the world 
And so that decision was made. But there were a lot of people who were then like, well, that's not a true Harley. Have we gone too far in starting to create products that aren't truly Harley and that don't signify everything Harley stands for? And I, I don't know the ins and outs. I haven't been with the company in over four years, but you know, I would guess that that's at the heart of some of their strategic decision to pull out and they might be having trouble with it. What's your guess on their approach to electrification of transportation? What do you think about electric so, bikes? I have to say, I was so full disclosure to everyone listening. I was part of the initial launch of the Livewire. So the electric bike that is now commercially available. Okay. I was part of the global launch of unveiling that and starting to do some real-time like consumer testing and riding of that around the globe. And I am, I was and am a huge proponent of it. And Harley found a way to do the electric electric motorcycle. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of discussion around, well, Harley's internal combustion engine only like Harley stands for that very distinct potato, potato sound of the, of the engine. And at the same time, like, I believe, like I, I, I always say, I don't have a motorcycle right now. I sold mine after I left Harley, but the next motorcycle I buy when, and if I decide to buy one will be the live wire. I think they did a beautiful job in a very Harley way and I think it is the future. So, you know, especially when you look at urban markets, so it's not going to appeal to the Indias and Vietnams and, you know, the more of the kind of emerging markets and probably the bigger motorcycle markets. It will appeal to the New York cities and the Londons and the Amsterdams and the Chicago's and the LA's and all of that. And so that's tapping into a new audience for Harley. So I think in terms of audience expansion. I mean, listen, it's going to be, it's a fraction of their business. I can only imagine. And at the same time, I think it's a statement about the, you know, the, the forward thinking or the future thinking, you know, maybe more progressive thinking um, of the company and the brand. So I think it was a super smart move and that halo did impact positively impact the brand. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, both Porsche and Ferrari, which were like fiercely anti-electric early on. And, and now that taken, you know, for Porsche, you know, because you can actually hit launch a bunch of times on like the Tesla and not overheat it is actually like getting some pride for some Porsche people, you know, and, and the, you know, the Ferraris that the new ones are like, there's definitely collectors and there'll be people with opinions for a long time, but for some reason, you know, that, that real like sharp edge against electrification has been able to come off. Right. And so it's interesting for me though, because in that Harley world, there is like, you know, I grew up in like, as a 10 year old, I moved from a city of a million to a farm town of 3000. You know what I mean? Like, so this, like this blue collar work on it myself, you know, like, like you said, the potato, <laughs> the potato, potato sound. I haven't heard yeah. it that said that way, yeah. but you know, like, so it's interesting, this idea of like, how can you transition a culture without losing your legacy and however many people have Harley tattoos and you know what I mean? Like, like that, that tension of like the next chapter, right? It was, and honestly, this is what I lived and breathed for, you know, probably the 18 months leading up to the public announcement that Harley was, you know, uh, working on an electric motorcycle that would be available in the future. There was, we were pre preparing for all scenarios and we wanted our most loyal customers to be the first ones who learned about what we were doing and had the opportunity to sit on it. So we would bring it to our annual dealer conference, right? Where all of our dealers show up and we wanted them to get on it and to feel some ownership in it and to really understand it and give us feedback before it becomes real. But there's always that risk, right? There's, especially with, with any brand, the ones you mentioned and Harley and so many others, when you're taking that step into the future, there's always the risk that not everybody's gonna wanna come along with you. And I don't I don't know what kind of response they're getting now again. I'm not, you know, I can't, I don't officially represent the company. I haven't been there for over four years, 
a lot has happened since then, but I was really, really excited to see Livewire become a reality and to see it commercially for sale and to know it sounds like there's a hell of a lot of support amongst the Harley network, Harley dealers, loyal customers for, you know, the company moving into the future. There's probably more support for that than there is for some of these smaller bikes with internal combustion engines. That would be my guess. So it's interesting to say, where do we want to play? And, you know, to the point that we were making earlier, like where is like one or two steps too far and Harley putting out a small bike might be one or steps, two steps too far. I personally liked the smaller bike because it meant people could learn to ride on a Harley because actually before we had the smaller bikes out, you couldn't learn to ride on a Harley. I learned to ride on like a Honda and then I had to upgrade significantly to this bit, you know, this huge bike that I, you know, took me a while to learn how to ride it and control it. And I'm not sure I was ever even that good at it, but yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a really fun conversation for me. If people want to follow you, where are you most active? Yeah. I'm most active on Instagram at Solbatical. Also LinkedIn. I've been a little quiet lately because I took my mini Solbatical, but connect with me, Shelly Paxton. It's S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. And then if you want to just cruise around what I'm up to, you can listen to my podcast, which is called Rebel Souls, or go to my website, soulbatical.com. And that's two Bs, one T, or go buy the book. If any of this resonated, there's no marketing advice in my book. So just, this is actually, Jess, this was such a fun, and unique conversation for me because I've mostly been talking about sabbatical and hadn't kind of, you know, tapped into my my previous life as much. So this was a nice blend of the two and I appreciate that. But yeah, read the book if you want to go on a little bit of a sabbatical journey and, you know, live your life more authentically, courageously and purposefully. I love it. Well, why don't we finish with what's what's a question I didn't ask? Why don't we do that? Oh, That's so funny. You asked a lot of ones I didn't expect, which was awesome. It was really fun. And I'm glad you got some value out of it. I mean, what you didn't ask. I mean, I just want to pass. Yeah, go ahead. You got one. Yeah. I mean, here's what, here's what I would say is like, you know, I've been asked sort of like, well, where, where's all of this going? Right. And so The one thing I'm super passionate about, well, I guess I'm cause oriented as well. So 10% of all the proceeds of my book go to um, the Life is Priceless Foundation. So I support mental health and suicide prevention. That's a big cause. And if you read the book, you'll understand why. And two, I'm kind of on the tail end of my hero's journey where I'm now ready to bring Soulbatical and everything it stands for back into the corporate world. So that's the next evolution of my business is starting to work with companies to say, what is it, what would it look like to, you know, create a Soulbatical culture within your company to prevent burnout and to retain your top talent and all of that. So that's kind of the next phase of what I'm doing. If how if there Sorry, I did it. You have to beat me. If there, if there's anybody in your audience who's like, yeah, you know what, I want to do that. Whether it's a startup or a small business, just shoot me a note. Follow me, and let's have a conversation about what that would look like. So I want to play around with this in 2021 and beyond. Love it. Well, thanks again for making time for this. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. Good to get to know you. Yeah. Bye, everyone.